If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. You know what's interesting? Go back and watch the live stream. And I don't realize all the mannerisms that you have uh, until you watch yourself on camera. So I'm trying not to be self-conscious of how frequently my hands are doing whatever it is I'm doing up here because you don't think about it. Okay. Just filling it in while you get to Mark chapter 10. verse. We're going to read verse 17 through 22. Now, Fair warning, verse 22 is not the end of this story. This is the story of the rich young ruler. It's very famous in the story of, in the ministry of Jesus. Um, the, uh, my, my daughter is watching and she said, you look great, Dad. Uh, she's at home, so that's, that is hilarious. Can you imagine trying to explain that to Charles Spurgeon? How about, anyway, um, but the rich young ruler story is much longer than what I'm reading this morning. So I'm just letting you know this is actually going to be a two-part discussion on the rich young ruler. And part of today's sermon will make more sense in light of next week's sermon and vice versa. So just letting you know that in advance. Um, because there's just too much information, uh, I think, to go over to try to squeeze it all together into one, one Sunday morning. So... Uh, we're going to take it in two. But let's go ahead and read this, and, and we'll pray, and we'll get, we'll get started. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It is eternal. Jesus, you said that the scripture cannot be broken. So we approach this this morning as a narrative, as a story, but we also approach it knowing that you desired before the ages began to have this in your word for the express purpose of teaching us how to live, how to think, Lord, to strengthen us and encourage us as we walk with you. So, Lord, we ask that you would show us what we need to see from this text and that you would help me to share it as I do. Lord, we thank you for it. and We give you honor for it today. In the name of Jesus, amen. First thing I want to do is just remind you that last Sunday we talked about let the little children come to me. How many of you were here last Sunday? You remember that. Let the little children come to me. If you do not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you ain't receiving it. That's not exactly what he said, but it's pretty close to what he said. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child. And we talked about 
We receive an unshakable kingdom that Jesus is in charge of. He's reigning and ruling. It inaugurated with his ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Behold, the time is now. It is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The thesis statement of Mark is, the kingdom is here, and I am the, I am the trumpet announcing its, its, its arrival. I am the Son of God here in the flesh, the King of the kingdom, and it is now advancing. You're going to only receive this kingdom not by doing good works, not by being a good person, not by keeping the law flawlessly. You're going to be in this kingdom only if you receive it like a helpless child by faith. That was last week. Then we get to verse 17, and we get the famous rich young ruler story. Let's, let's look at some of these verses. I want to I go over the verses just one by one and kind of break down what is happening uh, for this morning's sermon, and then it'll lead us into next week. So as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus, a man, notice what's happening. A man ran up and knelt before him. The rich young ruler is probably accurately understood to be a little overconfident. He's probably even maybe arrogant. If you're a ruler and you're rich and it's the first century, yeah, it kind of comes with the territory. It's not all that different today. It's, it's really not. Human nature is the same. It really doesn't matter which culture you're in. It doesn't. If you go throughout history, people with power and money kind of think they're better than everybody else. It, it's really, it's not a complicated human condition. However, I think it is really important to note that as a Jewish man who was clearly serious about keeping the law, because he tells you, I've done all this from my youth. When you see these words, he ran and he knelt, it lets you know this is not casual, well, let me just flippantly ask a question of the so-called rabbi. That is not what's happening. He genuinely saw Jesus as somebody that had something important to say. And he uses the word, and we know that this is important, he uses the word good teacher. So for us, that we just read right by that, but in Jewish antiquity, the only people that got called good were very rare occasions. The word good was usually reserved for God and his goodness. Most of the time, they didn't use that as a casual greeting. Now, the Greeks did, but the Jews did not. That, was, that wasn't a word they casually threw around. So the reason Jesus responds in verse 18 the way he does is because this rich young ruler, again, running up to Jesus and falling down and kneeling. So we got a rich guy in nice clothes. Everybody around knows he's rich. Jesus is surrounded by fishermen and people he would have viewed as lower than him, he gets in front of Jesus and kneels down and says, good teacher, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? 
The question that he's asking is a question of what's it take? What's it cost? What do I got to do? Give me a list. Give me something that I can do to earn, inherit, is the word that is used, receive. What do I got to do to receive eternal life? So you kind of get the picture. This is a sincere, probably arrogant, but sincere Jewish rich ruler. Verse 18. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We need to talk about verse 18. Because this is one of these verses that cults will go to. See? Jesus doesn't think that he's God. Because Jesus said no one's good except God. Have you ever heard that before? You need to get on the internet more often. Get in the comment sections. Some of the YouTube videos or whatever. If you haven't encountered the internet warrior atheists, uh, you're, you're looking at the wrong videos if you haven't encountered them yet. Um, but this is, a, this is a scripture that's used a lot. But in the context of the teacher, of being called a good teacher and culturally understanding where this guy was coming from, Jesus is saying to him, why do you call me good? He, he's kind of saying, I, I see what you did there, rich young ruler. You call me good because you think that you're pretty good and you recognize that I'm pretty good. So what you're hoping for is some kind of answer what else you need to do because you're recognizing that I am good and that I've, I've got something to say. But he, Jesus, is resetting the conversation and saying, no one's good except God. What he, he's not talk, Jesus is not making a commentary on the fact that he is God in the flesh, that he is equal with the Father. He is not, that is not what he has in view. What he has in view is the misguided perception of the rich young ruler, and he's trying to alter the perspective that he has. He's highlighting the contrast of the rich young ruler's view of goodness, which is achievement. So he's looking at Jesus and saying, you're, you're good, which was rare, but I recognize you're good. What do, what do I have to do to earn this? And Jesus says, wait a second. Why are you calling me good? Why are you calling me good? I know why you're calling me good. There's nobody good except God alone. And then he immediately, immediately goes into, you know the commandments. He is, he's speaking the language of the rich young ruler and where he's coming from because the rich young ruler is coming from the perspective of, what do I have to do? Knowing that he keeps the law pretty well. The reason we know he keeps the law pretty well because Jesus is going to give him. And Daryl, can you throw up that that graphic? Because this is going to be helpful. I asked Daryl during praise and worship if he could do this, so so everybody should give Daryl a round of applause that he did it um, because that was really late. 
But here are the Ten Commandments. And you see that I've got them bracketed in red. Um, in, a, in the very first three commandments, it says one. In the, in, the, in the second bracket, it says a two. The reason for that, some theologians, and this is really helpful just to have a category in your mind, some theologians call the second table of the law, that's what they call this bottom one, is the second table of the law, because those are the commandments that deal with people. But the first table of the law, the first three commandments, that first table is exactly what it sounds like. It's the most important. The first table of the law is, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods or other gods before me. This is, this is the most important thing. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember to keep holy the Lord's day. The, those three commandments deal with man and God. The, the next seven commandments, they deal with honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. That's actually Hebrew. It's murder. So it doesn't involve warfare or police work or things where you're dealing with bad guys. Kill means murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. So this is, these are the Ten Commandments. Jesus, if you look at verse 19, lists the second table of the law. Now, this was something that was done in uh, the first century as well. They, they understood that that first three were the big three, that, that first three that dealt with God, but this, this interaction among your fellow man, of course, it's part of the Ten Commandments, but they call it the second table of the law. One of the interesting things, just so you can see, you'll notice that one of them in verse 19 is do not defraud, and they're out of order. I'm not going to go into all the details with that, but do not defraud. Um, a, lot of, a lot of folks just say that that has something to do with combining uh, two of the commandments together. Um, but Jesus's point is in the law, in the Ten Commandments, he lists for him all of the commandments that deal with interactions with people. The, the important thing that Jesus does is he gets him to think about what he has done. Because the question is, teacher, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? So Jesus gives him some things from the law. And he said, and you can almost see the rich young ruler's face, because the way he answers, you can tell that he probably got a grin on his face and said, is that it? I've done this from my youth. I've, I've kept those commandments. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians when he said, concerning the law, I was blameless. I kept all the rules. And I was murdering Christians. <laughs> but he kept all the rules. 
he hears what Jesus is saying about what you're not supposed to, about the law, and he says, he's looking for an answer. What do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him the second table of the law, and he says, I've done that. I've done that since I was 12. It's the bar mitzvah. It's when you become a man in Jewish culture and you start becoming an observant follower of the law as and considered an adult by everybody around you. I, I, I've done it since my youth. Yes, I'm in. Obviously, that's not what he says. I just I think that's probably the way he felt when he answered Jesus. His perspective is... I can earn something. That is his perspective. That is obviously not the way the gospel works. Because what does the first table of the law really say? The first table of the law that deals with God the very first commandment in particular, you shall have no other gods before you, is an issue of your heart. See, a lot of times people will say that the Old Testament is just rules, just rules, and the New Testament is about grace. How many of you have heard this or felt this or thought this? And it's like 20% right. It's, it's not that it's wrong but it's not all the way right. Because when asked what the most important commandment was, do you remember what Jesus said? He quotes Leviticus. The Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die. Right? When you're trying to read through the Bible in a year and you get to Leviticus, you're just like, I, I can't do it. I can't read one more of these. I can't do it. So in Leviticus, Jesus quotes and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In those are the law and the commandments. Because if you're doing that, you've got the first table of the law, God, and your heart is centered on Him. And you've got the second table of the law, because if I love my neighbor as myself, I'm not killing them. I'm not going to uh, commit adultery. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to lie. If I love them as I love myself, I'm not going to do any of those things. So Jesus sums it up, wraps it up, but his answer in the New Testament from the lips of Jesus is to quote the Old Testament law. Are you following me? Jesus fulfills the law, but he doesn't erase it. It's not erased. The Old Testament is really valuable, especially in regard to showing how God expected certain ways that we treat one another. So, it's, it's wrong to think that in the Old Testament they did not have a conception of the condition of their heart, because they did. Isaiah is the one that Jesus quotes when Jesus says, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah is the one who says, 
you sacrifice to me, which is what I told you to do in the law, but it's like you broke a dog's neck on the altar. Now, why would God say that? You did the right thing. Your heart is somewhere else. You are acting out of rote, repetitive, religious uh, duty. So there's no delight. There's only duty. And God says he wants our delight to be in him. Delight yourself in the Lord. Does anybody know where that verse is? It's in the Old Testament. Written by David. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Not grant that you want 27 Cadillacs in a $10 million mansion. But that God will supplant your desires with his own. Your heart will be consumed with who he is. The issue of the Old Testament is not different than the issue of the New. The New Testament says, you need a new heart. The Old Testament says, we've got to get you to a Savior that is going to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, which was prophesied in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. But the issue is the issue of the heart. And the issue of the law is actually an issue of the heart. And what had begun to happen over the centuries, and in the first century was epidemic, especially among the Pharisees, was the issue of the heart was poo-pooed off to the side. What was important was how meticulous you kept the rules. It is not dissimilar to what has happened frequently in American Christianity, and not just American Christianity, anywhere Christianity has been, it goes through a cycle where people have this revivalistic excitement about who God is, and then eventually that is replaced with, you got to go to church, you can't go to these kind of movies, you got to dress this way. Now inside, you can be full of lust, greed, and hate, but as long as nobody sees it, you're good. Now, nobody says it that way. Nobody's going to preach a sermon that way, but that's the way that people live. All of this is, is in here because this guy, this rich young ruler, who was sincere, I, I believe that, because look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That, that I don't think, is, is the John 3.16, for God so loved the world love. I think what is happening here, and I could be wrong, but I think that what is being said here is Jesus is recognizing the guy in verse 17 that ran to him and knelt before him, has a heart, to do what is right. He wants to, and Jesus wants him to go the whole way. And he recognizes this is a guy who knows how to do the rules. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anybody. Check your own heart. How many times do we go through this rationalization process? I've never done this. And I've never done that. And I've never done this. My heart is three times too small like the Grinch. But I've never done these things. I'm not going to help anybody. I'm not going to love anybody. I'm not going to pray for anybody. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not really excited about God at all. I don't really love him. I just keep the rules so you all think that I'm a good person, that I'm a good church person. And that's what happens to Christianity when you don't really focus and center on what is most important. And what is most important is learning that your efforts are worthless. 
Filthy rags. Your efforts are worthless. Because this guy had kept the second table of the law flawlessly, but had not done the most important part, which is his heart did not have God in first place. His heart had who knows what else, but we know what else. His heart had money in first place. But as long as he wasn't killing anybody, who cares? I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm keeping the law. Sometimes when I when I read this and I realize this was two thousand years ago, I just we think that we were are so different than they are. We just we're not different. Human nature. It doesn't matter. We speak different languages. We have te- it, we it, we're the same. So Jesus responds with love. With this, I, I think this is almost Jesus saying, we're, we're almost there. And he is going to deliver a crushing blow. Now, this is not a crushing blow intended to kill the guy. This is a crushing blow intended to kill what he had wrong so that real life could begin. And this is how the gospel works. It is a crushing blow. The reason the Bible says that the world will hate us is because the message is a crushing blow against humanity. Humans are guilty before a holy God, and they are wretched and sinful. And outside of His grace, you have no hope. You can't keep all the rules enough to go to heaven. Therefore, you have to repent of where you are and what you are, which is a sinner, and come to the open arms of the Savior. That's what you must do. You must believe and you must repent. That's what you must do. This is a crushing blow, but it it can be a crushing blow that crushes the resistance and the callousness and the recognition comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, There is the Savior, and I can be saved. Or it's a crushing blow that says, how dare you say that I'm a sinner? How dare you say that I am this ugly thing? Jesus delivers a crushing blow. He says to him, you lack one thing. And he's going to address commandment number one. I'm the Lord your God. You shall not have any other gods before me. He's addressing the heart. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus points back to the table one of the law and says, what you lack is total devotion to God. That's what you lack. Yes, you're keeping the rules, but your heart doesn't really belong to God. You're keeping the rules because it's expedient for you to do so, and you do have a desire to do what is right. But your desire to do what is right 
is clearly rooted in your desire to be viewed as what the person who does what is right. You want people to know you're doing what is right. And then the, the very end that Jesus says is, sell all you've got, come follow me. I'm the king of the kingdom. I'm the Messiah and I'm here. If you want to know what must I do to receive eternal life, what you must do is abandon everything and follow me. Now, let me put a parenthesis here. If it was as easy as selling all your goods and you were guaranteed to go to heaven, then there would really be no reason for us to keep anything. We'd just sell it all right now. If, if that's what Jesus was getting at, then Christianity would be a religion where the moment you became a Christian, you gave everything away and entered into a monastery. There have been people who think that is the right way to do it. But that is, God wants us to be salt and light in the marketplace. Therefore, we're going to have jobs and we're going to make money. So that is not the point. But for this guy, who was a faithful keeper of the law to a point, but his heart was somewhere else, Jesus is addressing the issue of his heart. Now, there have been people throughout history that this verse has convicted them, and they have done it. And I'm not going to say, I'm just, I want to make this as dangerous as I possibly can. I'm not going to say that God would never say, you, Steve, have got a problem. And here's my solution. You sell all you've got. I'm not going to say that God couldn't do that. But you're going to want to have maybe some counsel and some prayer and some maybe talk it over with some people before you do it. But I'm, I'm not going to say that it couldn't happen because it has happened. There have been people throughout church history who have read this verse and knew God was talking to them to do it. Okay? And I am not going to say that he won't because some of the greatest missionaries that have ever lived have become so because of verses like this. So I don't want to, I'm not going to get everybody off the hook. Let's just. Let's just tentatively say there is a hook, and God could put you on that hook. But I'm not saying that it's a universal. That's what I'm getting at. This is not a universal for us just to sell everything. Because the point is, that could just be another work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I gave my body away and gave all my goods away but have not love, I'm a clanging gong, I'm a worthless symbol. So, so ultimate sacrificial giving is just another work at the end of the day. If, if that's why you did it. But for this guy, whose heart was connected to the money, connected to the success, connected to it in a way that allowed him to keep the law comfortably, but not have his heart fully devoted to God, Jesus got right down to where he was and said, this is what you need to do. And verse 22 is really sad. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want to say, I don't know what happened to this guy. We don't, this story never gets picked back up. We'll find out in eternity one day. But I wonder, 
I wonder if this didn't gnaw at his soul by the by the Holy Spirit. We don't know that this guy doesn't repent later and come to Christ. We don't know. There's there's something in the the disheartened and sorrowful response that he has because of his great possessions, which, by the way, this is the first moment we know that he's uh, rich because verse 17 just says it's a man. Verse 22 tells us, oh, yeah, by the way, this guy had a lot. So we don't know. But what we do know is in this moment, he could not accept the price that was laid in front of him. Next week, what we're going to get into is the issue of wealth, the issue of money, and how that affects our heart, how that affects our walk with God, and how it's been an issue for 2,000 years. Um, there is only one competitor that God has ever given in Scripture, and Jesus says you can't serve God in money. And you serve money by, and all, a lot of you know exactly how it works because we do it. You serve money by thinking about it, thinking about it, talking about it, thinking about it, and talking about it, and thinking about it, and worrying about it, and wondering about it, and watching the news about it, and thinking about it, and talking about it. Is there anything else you do like you do what you do with money? Because you got to have it, and you need it. And then you start getting into all the questions of, how much is my heart affected by the brand new truck that I watched the other guy drive in with? How much is affected by the house I drove by wishing that that was my house? How much of it was affected by I heard the retirement presentation at work and realized, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. My 401k is dismal. How much of it is affected by, oh no, Russia, Ukraine. Oh no, inflation. Oh no, oh no, oh no. How much, how much of our time and energy and effort is put into money? A lot. A bunch. The number one reason for divorce in America is fights over money. Well done, Brandon. Yes, you have to get married in order to be divorced. But after that, the number one, the number one reason is money. So this guy hoping to learn some new secret wisdom from this good teacher of how he could inherit it. And he was a good keeper of the law. Finds out that the issue is, is that his heart belongs to something else. His heart belongs to money. So Jesus comes right in at what really captivates his heart, which is money, and says, you got to get rid of that. Come follow me. The lesson is kind of self-explanatory, but there are some reflective questions for us to ask. And I think it's one of the sermons where you walk away and you ask yourself some questions. Where is your heart? Where is your heart with God? 
do you delight in him? You know, when I was confronted with the reality that delight was more important than duty, because it feels honorable to do my duty and be a Christian and serve God when it's hard. You may have been taught this way. I was taught this way. You don't do it because you feel it. You do it because you know that it's true. And there's something admirable and very, very General McCarthy, very stern, very, look at me. I'm doing my duty as a Christian. I don't do it because I feel it. I do it because I must admire me. Now, that's implicit. You don't say that part, but that's what everybody, everybody understands. That's in the background. But God is not after mere dutiful living for him, though he wants obedience. Clearly, he wanted this guy to sell everything. That is the most radical call to obedience that you could ever ask for. But what God wants is delight in the hearts of his people towards him. If you read Psalm 119, it's filled with this flowery language that he delighted in the law of God. Over and over and over, my delight is in your law. And you have to ask, how do you, how do you get like that? You, you don't get it by making a New Year's resolution commitment type of thing where you say, I will dutifully delight. Because it doesn't work that way. The way that it works is, is that you go before God and you say, Lord, my heart is a mess. My mind is a mess. I am helpless without you. Do your work in my heart. Do your work in my mind. Do your work in me. And when you begin to seek the Lord that way, asking God for his help, he helps us in the transformation of our heart. He, he does a supernatural, mysterious work. I don't, there isn't a formula that I can give you. But we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart so that we can delight in Him. And part of it are sermons where you are confronted with the idea that your duty is okay, but it's secondary to your delight. Your, your duty has to be second place to what is truly valuable, which is your heart desiring God above all else. When I realize that I can't turn desire on, and yet I'm commanded to, that is when I begin to feel the desperation of my humanity that I can't do what He commands that I do. Delight yourself in the Lord is not a casual, hopeful suggestion for super serious Christians who had a really good revival experience. Delight yourself in the world, it, delight yourself in the Lord is a command to act. And I can't do it without his help. So I am like a child going before the king saying, I need your help. 
to do what you command me to do. And it is astonishing how God answers those prayers in all kinds of ways. The rich young ruler didn't even attempt. His heart was consumed with money. He just wanted another rule. He just wanted another rule that he could do. But our hearts, that is a dangerous business to try to get into what we feel and what we want and to say, God, I recognize that my heart wants lots of things and you are in last place. Here's how we know that delight is more important than duty. I'm not the first person to use this illustration, but it's, it's a really good one. If I bring Jennifer flowers because she's my wife, and I hand them to her, and she says, this is really unexpected and nice. Why did you get these two? Why, why did you do this? And I say, it's my duty. Did all the wives feel the romance? Did everybody's heart melt? That's not the right answer. That's not the way that you're supposed to do that. Why is that? Because that's cold and it's ugly. In fact, it's actually worse than no flowers at all. But if I come in and I say, flowers, she says, why did you do that? And I say, nothing makes me happier than seeing you smile when I give you flowers. Is that the right answer? Did you notice there was something weird in there in what I said? Nothing makes me happier than seeing you happy? Would Jennifer ever say, oh, well, look how selfish you are. Nothing makes you happier? Or would she recognize that I get delight out of her getting delight? Isn't that more of what we're looking for, right? Wives in particular, it's what you're looking for. God is asking that our delight be in him. In the way that it's not a duty that I bring to him. Look at what I've done, Lord. Never felt a thing towards you. It's all duty. It's all testosterone. Commitment. God wants our heart. That's what he wants. So, next week we're going to revisit this. We're going to, we're going to talk about the rest of the story because the story isn't over. There's a lot more in here. And it's going to be about money. So, come back next week for that. Let's all stand up. For the record, we can turn every one of these sermons into duty. So weird. We can turn grace into duty. We are experts at figuring out how to get the attention off of what the Bible puts it on and get it on to, here's what I did, step one, step two, 
Step three. So part of my prayer is, is that our hearts would be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what we need. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the precious name of Jesus, and we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for being here. We thank you for your word. God, I, I pray that it would produce fruit. I pray that our lives would be altered because of what you have said and what you are teaching. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be hearts that delight in you above all else. Lord, we give you thanks for that. We give you praise that you are not leaving us alone to figure it out on our own. You are helping us. We thank you for that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed tonight, 6 p.m. Prayer.